0: It wasn't until recent decades that Western science has begun to consider that there could be substantially more to life than we're currently living. There could be more insight, creativity, capability, and happiness. In this episode, Dr. Nader sits down with the world-renowned neurosurgeon Dr. Phil Stieg to discuss how to attain the pinnacle of human awareness. Dr. Philip Stieg is a widely published author An internationally known lecturer and neurosurgeon. He is the chairman and founder of the Weill Cornell Medicine Brain and Spine Center, the leading center for patient care in New York City. He is a past president of the Brain Tumor Foundation and the New York Board of the American Heart Association. He has served as an advisor to the Defense Department on brain injury and has appeared on the best doctors of America list every year for more than two decades he is the host of the podcast this is your brain with dr phil stieg a podcast that provides engaging conversations with experts and patients about how the brain works in this season of the podcast dr stieg explores the very foundation of what makes us human welcome to this very special podcast
1: with an internationally known physician doctor neurosurgeon an incredible thinker, researcher in brain science and consciousness and in different fields that actually influence how we are human and what makes us who we are. Dr. Steig, what a joy to have you. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. There is so much to learn from you and to listen to you. You have been a great expert in the brain. We want to know in your podcasts, in your discussions, what has been most striking in your exploration as well as in your research? When you go back to yourself and ask what makes us human, what should be the answer to that?
2: I think it's very similar to what you experience when you talk about Transcendental Meditation. And by the way, thank you very much for having me on. It's It's a great pleasure to get back together with you again. I always enjoy our conversations. But I think that all of healthcare is becoming so integrated. It's my bias that the brain is the most important organ. I frequently have this debate with the cardiac surgeons, but I remind them that I can transplant the heart, I can't transplant the brain. <laughs> so they can't fight that. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that all of our surroundings, everything, either material and uh, or spiritual, is still perceived by our brain. And everybody that I interview on the show is coming to understand how the body, mind and spirit are so integrated. And it's, you know, it's integrated at different levels. It's integrated in terms of diet and how does diet affect stress and sleep and generally how we feel, how diet affects our hormonal levels. Yeah, exercise, sleep, Stress, all of these different factors, the way they affect the brain has been just a real pleasure. And I'm hopeful that the public learns this, that they have to start thinking about it in an integrated way. But most importantly, we need our doctors to start understanding that it's integrated. You know, internists need to understand or teach their patients that good food is going to be good for their body and good for their brain.
1: This is wonderful. That's the side of chemistry that influences the brain and we talked about the side of also thinking process that influences the brain. But let's for our listeners and viewers think for a moment, is the brain really a one organ? Of course it is uh, one entity that is inside the skull, but there are so many functions that it does and you have certainly Experienced firsthand patients with different lesions in different parts of the brain. And does it feel sometimes that it is more than one organ, as if it's many functions? Let's say if we compare it to a computer, are there many processors or is this one big processor? If we look at it from this angle, what would you say to us about it?
2: Well, if I relate it to a computer, which is an interesting idea, I would see it as, you know, there are icons on your screen. And if you're dealing in a visual process, you're clicking on the visual icon. If you're dealing with a cognitive skill, you're clicking on that icon. The difference between a computer, though, and our brain is the fact that this is all integrated, as you know, into neural networks. And that's where the concept of artificial intelligence is still having difficulty. You know, you can train a computer to learn a little bit, but it's still difficult for it to integrate. And in particular, when we look at brain computer interfaces, the motions that a computer chip linked to a robot can replicate is much simpler than what you and I can do. And even what's more interesting is at the, at the cellular level, how, you know, it's not just one nerve cell connecting to one muscle and controlling it, but there's this network of nerve cells that control regular movements, you know, each day we feed ourselves, And so that feeding motion is not just a bunch of neurons. It's a well-integrated set of neurons. Yes, it's a very complex machine that has divided functions. As you know, there's the visual cortex, the speech cortex, the motor cortex, sensory cortex, a part of the brain that keeps your heart beating, that keeps you breathing. They're all integrated. And I think one of the major areas of interest for me is we say that you only use 20% of it. So what's that other 80% doing? I personally think that it's perceiving at a subliminal level, our surroundings and absorbing information. How we use it or whether it pops up at some point in our life remains to be clarified. So there
1: are many inhabitants, in a sense, working in the brain, because if we damage one area, that area uh, loses its function, but the other areas continue. And so even very sharp, small damages can lead to very sharp, small changes. And yet the person continues to be the same. It's like they continue to remember who they are. Of course, they might lose some memory if they, some areas are hurt. But the sense of self, for example, do we have any more knowledge from your research and your experimentation about the sense of being Tony or Phil or Adrian
2: or someone else? I think if i had the answer to that question for you i might be getting the nobel prize as you well know (laughs) what's interesting too is that there's you know like when you talk about matter and non-matter kinds of, of subjects there's the concrete things that your brain does vision motor sensory smell taste things like that but then there's the integrated thing that's managed in say the frontal lobes and the parietal lobes of your brain And we know from patients that have had strokes on the left side of their brain in what's called the parietal lobe, they lose the ability. It's called acalculia. They can't do mathematics. It's agraphia. They can't draw. They have right-left disorientation. So it really, it does affect who they are and how they perceive the world. And if I take your question even more deeply in terms of who's Tony and who's Phil, So that's a complex array of electrical, neurochemical, environmental experiences that we have that, again, I think there's that 80% that's absorbing our surroundings and then how my brain manipulates that information versus your brain is so dependent upon the chemical components of my brain, the genetic components and i mean the one thing that i don't think any of us really understand is what is consciousness you know why do i have a different level of consciousness or a different type than you do
1: and can we say that if you have like all the functions available you are likely to have more consciousness in a sense is like looking at consciousness not just as an all or nothing phenomenon but something that is uh, much more complete, that has depths, it has widths, because all these areas that you mentioned that actually are not directly uh, open to the outward wakeful awareness, they're also computing, they're also being aware kind of on their level. And the more they are available to us, either directly, consciously, or subliminally, subconsciously, the more we have ability maybe to compute things and make better decisions. Can we say that?
2: In general, I think the answer is yes. Again, you and I both know that there are genetic mutations that occur in individuals such that their, their judgment is always going to be wrong. They don't make a particular neurotransmitter, so that they have uh, particular problems if we're going down the pathway, do do I and do you, and I know you do, and as do I, believe that the states where you're in more of a restful awareness, i.e. in transcendental meditation or in mindfulness states, are those good for you? And do those expand your overall cognitive skills? We have lots of, of evidence now that does support that. I mean, there's functional MRI imaging, there's imaging looking at the size of the the cortex, the outer layer of the brain, the thickness of it, the thickness of the pathway between the two hemispheres called the corpus callosum is enriched by these activities. So the answer is yes, it does enhance and enrich who we are. The, The key component is what accounts for the difference between you and me, Again, we can talk about genetics, we can talk about cells, and we can talk about environment, but is there something else in terms of mass consciousness that covers, I think you refer to it as collective consciousness? Yes. I I still haven't got my arms around that. Maybe you, I hope you will someday.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think of collective consciousness as a reality from the perspective of A paradigm that says that actually consciousness is primary rather than actually the material reality. And so this is a discussion which can be more philosophical and requires to analyze how is it possible that consciousness can appear as matter or consciousness can be the brain itself or the dynamics of consciousness. And this is really based on our perception of reality from the perspective of how our brain works, which means it is one machine that sees things from one perspective. So if you produce a 700 nanometer wavelength light to me and my eyes pick it up, I'll say this is red. And red, of course, is something that is a perception that my brain analyzes and experiences as red, whereas the physical reality, what I call the physical reality outside, is a wavelength of light. And so our perceptions as humans of reality is only that actually, our perception of what reality is. And so from a paradigm that I am kind of supporting is that actually consciousness is primary and it's the dynamics of consciousness that lead to different perceptions and experiences in the relative, including the experience of solidity, of structure, of shape and you know, including the structure of our body and the structure of our nervous system. But I guess this is <laughs> this is something that that is more conjectural, I guess, and it has to be analyzed in a more systematic way to see how it can make sense in the overall picture.
2: As I was listening to you, I had two thoughts is, uh, do you have to have a brain to have consciousness? And then if I look back and say, okay, the brain is an organ and its primary function is to ensure the survival of the brain and the body around it. And hence, the if you look at the developmental species, how the brain has evolved over time in higher organisms, it's become more complex. Its energy requirements have become more complex and therefore its food hunting and gathering abilities have increased as well. Then I take it on the flip side of and looking at and thinking about near-death experiences, which is a fascinating topic about these individuals that are taken into a different reality and they are said to be dead, but then their body is either up on the ceiling watching the doctors work on them, or they go down a tunnel and there's a light. Time loses all sense color perception loses all sense, but the brain is dead, and then all of a sudden it comes back and it retains all of that. And the descriptions of these events are life-altering, very vivid, very positive. You know, how would you explain that from your perspective?
1: From my perspective, you know, there is a dualistic perspective that there is something mind and consciousness on one side. And there is the physical reality on the other side, that is the Cartesian Descartes as a reference. And then we realize that how would something that is non-material talk to something material and cause changes in it and vice versa. So as we know, we have the physicalists who say, well, actually everything is physical and the consciousness is an emergent quality when the physical got so complex and organized itself into nervous systems, not only ours, but even taking animals into consideration. Also, then there is some development of conscious experience and meta-consciousness, which means being conscious of one's own consciousness. Now, this development leads to higher and higher consciousness as complexity arises. And that's one of the reasons I kind of addressed the, the question with you about like more processors, if you like, and more ability to tap into these 80% that are there computing quietly. But if we can tap into them and that's what transcendental meditation actually does, it just opens the awareness to these deeper levels and we have research that suggests that this is the case that is why we have broader and broader consciousness so this leads to one perception of reality that there is physical the physical gets complex the complexity leads to nervous system nervous system then actually leads to consciousness but there is no way so far that i know that has demonstrated how the subjective experience, this is what we both know very well, is called the heart problem of consciousness. How does consciousness emerge from the physical? So my perspective, and it comes from also the ancient knowledge and many philosophers in modern times and the Greek times postulated, that actually we can take the other point of view, that actually consciousness is primary which means there is not something physical to start with. There is only consciousness. Now, if you go into this area, you might say, then how does the physical emerge? So what is called normally the heart problem of consciousness uh, becomes the heart problem of physicalness. (laughs) I'd like to say that this is the true heart problem because consciousness, actually, we're sure that we have it. As humans, we have it, we realize things, we study things, we do our surgery, we do our analysis, we study the world and the universe and understand and feel love and compassion and dread and light and this through consciousness. Without consciousness, all of this is meaningless in a sense to us. If we are the wealthiest person in the universe, it doesn't matter if we are not conscious, if we cannot appreciate that. So consciousness is quite solid on an empirical level.
2: It's one of, it's one of those things where you, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see exactly.
1: it. Exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know it is there. You know, this is Kajito Ergo Sum. I, I know I'm conscious, therefore I am. So mm-hmm. my sense of being is based on the fact that I can think that I have consciousness. Therefore, I know I am. So the strength of being is standing on the pedestal on the platform of being conscious, of being aware, then approving and accepting one's own being. So the problem therefore becomes, why is there something rather than nothing, since consciousness is not something physical? And if it is something non-physical, how is it that we experience the different realities of the physical world, which is also true, because we experience pain, we experience objects, a table, a chair, we experience sound and light. So we can't negate the realism of the physical on that level. Mm -hmm. So that was the main issue of uh, my research, actually, and my trying to find a solution to the question we are raising now. And the way it works is consciousness has a nature it has its nature what is the nature we are calling it consciousness because it has a nature which is to be conscious so to be conscious is the nature of consciousness and if there is one consciousness as a starting point then if it expresses its nature which is to be conscious then it has already created a concept of multiplicity. Why? Because to be conscious means to be conscious of something. To be conscious is there is a subject who is conscious and there is an object that the subject is conscious of. So there is an observer and an observed and there must be something linking them because if they are separate and not connected to each other, if the flower is on the table but I don't look at it and I don't see it, then there is no process of being conscious of the flower, so there has to be a link between them, the epistemic link, if you like, the process of knowing that connects them. So what happens in this paradigm is that there is three values that emerge from the one consciousness, and that is the principle of an observer who is a witness, the principle of an object who's sitting out there, and a principle of a dynamic link between them. And so this leads to the beginning of diversity. So to make a long story short, we can say that the nature of consciousness is to be conscious in all possible ways it can be conscious. And therefore, it can be conscious as an unbounded observer or a limited observer, very limited observer. And what is a limited observer? A limited observer is an observer that can only see from a very limited perspective, doesn't see the wholeness of consciousness itself. And so there is a process, and this is what I explain in the book One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. There is a process that leads to this multiplicity. And from this process, becomes all possible ways of being conscious. So our human ways of being conscious with a nervous system and with certain qualities of consciousness are some of these ways. Other ways are the ways of being conscious from an animal perspective, from a tree perspective, from a stone perspective.
2: That was was going to be my question. Would you agree that there are levels of consciousness? And I, I was interviewing someone that was spending a lot of time down on the coral reefs looking at very simple sea life, but these animals would respond or, yeah, you know, these these creatures, animals would respond to him, but they would also respond to each other, to me, meaning that there is consciousness, but their level of consciousness isn't what you and I are experiencing right now.
1: It's absolutely beautiful and not only important and beautiful, but fundamental towards the ability to explain how consciousness appears as many and how consciousness can appear as physical reality. Yes, indeed, we have to expand the concept and understanding of consciousness from an anthropomorphic perception, which means a perception that is based on human consciousness to calling whatever is sensing, feeling, detecting, experiencing as also aspects of consciousness on a scale, on a range from a broader consciousness as humans have to a more limited consciousness, maybe as a chimpanzee has or as a dog or a cat has to even, as you say, even on the most basic level of animal life And even a tree life, for example, a tree or let's say a sunflower. We don't say it has eyes, but it does detect light, for example. And it turns, the sunflower turns to the sun. We can say this is an automatic sensing. Of course, I'm not saying that the sunflower sits there and says, oh, I'd like to look at the sun today. It's so nice. I will feel better. It doesn't do that. It's a very automatic sensing. But that sensing is a very minimal level of consciousness. And it is one of the ways that consciousness is aware of itself. One of the ways that consciousness can be conscious. So when we said the nature of consciousness is to be conscious and to be conscious in all possible ways, we have all this range of ways. On the most limited level, you can even say that an electron is the most elementary, one of the most elementary levels of sensing. It can sense an electromagnetic field. We're going to call this consciousness. The problem is going to be when people will start saying, well, does it mean the electron knows it is conscious, makes a decision? No, no, not at all, not at all. We have to accept as you beautifully highlighted, That consciousness is on a range from very minimal to higher consciousness and beyond what we usually know as normal consciousness of dream, waking, as sleeping of a human to even higher consciousness, which we call transcendental consciousness. Even we have names for cosmic consciousness and unity consciousness.
2: So that would then help explain Different perceptions of consciousness. I, again, consciousness for a sea anemone is very different than consciousness for you and me. The more fundamental question since you're saying that consciousness is what everything emanates from, then what comes first, consciousness or the brain? Consciousness comes first. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew you would say that. Okay. In this paradigm, <laughs> to make it understandable,
1: I define what you called a bit of consciousness. A bit of consciousness is a moment of consciousness, which means an observer, a process, and an observed. Three values. So there is an observer that looks at a point, at another value. For example, an electron experiences or senses a positron. So they come together. Of course, none of them thinks I am a positron because they have no sense of self, no sense of anything. It's just very minimal sensing. When they come together, they create a new entity, or they actually can annihilate each other in this case. Well, we can say we can say any complex, an electron and a nucleus and a proton and a neutron, they come together. First, we have a hydrogen atom. It's a different now entity. Now, this entity interacts with, two of them interact with an oxygen, and they become H2O. That's a new entity, and a new entity has little more complex ways of interacting and reacting. And we are going to say this is more and more complex modes of consciousness. So, which means there is the bit of consciousness, which is observer observed process. But as the bit happens, it creates a new mode of consciousness. This new mode of consciousness leads to new possibilities. So this H2O can interact with calcium, with magnesium, with this and cause this and cause of that. So you have more and more complex modes of consciousness. Modes of consciousness. In fact, we analyze them as humans as being a particular physical element, but they are actually dynamics of consciousness itself. And as they build up and complexify, they lead to higher and higher modes of consciousness due to bigger and bigger patterns of consciousness. So from modes, we get to now patterns. And as we complexify the patterns, we get anatomy in a human being. And anatomy in a human being has within it networks. So it's not the whole anatomy always working together, but it has physiology. And physiology is a network within the pattern. It's a way the pattern allows certain functions to happen. So from this paradigm, what we're calling the brain, it's actually a very complex set of patterns of consciousness that from one perspective, which is a human perspective, is considered as a brain. Now, does it exist? Is it real? Yes, of course it is real. We're not denying its reality. What we're saying is its essence, its ultimate reality is consciousness. I usually take the example of, let's say gold, and you make out of the gold, you make a necklace, you make a ring, you make a statue, you make a bracelet, And these are different elements with different shapes and different possibilities, you know, that you can do with them. You can even out of gold make a chip or something, an electromagnetic chip or whatever, or use it in a chip. Now, all of this is different and real on its own level, but its ultimate reality, its ultimate essence is consciousness. This is how consciousness is primary.
2: Do you think that some people would want to think that consciousness is pure, it's nothing good, nothing evil about it, it just is, it is. And do you think then that the different forms of consciousness, yours versus mine versus somebody else's, is the result of your interactions with the surrounding, and also the genetic and chemical environment that you've been in versus mine is that is that why consciousness is different for different people
1: yes exactly the thing is consciousness we can say there is a realm of consciousness that is non-manifest unmanifest realm, and that realm is the field of imagination if you like like an author imagining characters So you can start, let's start with pre-Big Bang kind of idea. (laughs) And what do we have? We have nothing that we call physical. What we have is an unmanifest, non-manifest realm of consciousness. That realm of consciousness has a nature which is to be conscious, and to be conscious is all possible ways. Therefore, we are going to say that it imagines all potential possibilities which means it imagines phil when he was young and a student and tony when he was a doctor and phil was when he was the greatest neurosurgeon in the world and also phil as the head of so many uh, organizations and young and old and all of that all of these are imagination like an author imagining all possible characters before the author writes the book all of these are non-manifest so if you go to schrodinger's cat for example in that imagination there is schrodinger's cat alive and there is schrodinger's cat dead we know of course schrodinger's cat and the superposition issue in physics so they're all there there is no contradiction in that because you raised the point about this this consciousness not being good or bad or anything, it has just a neutral thing. And everything is neutral. So it has all possible images of all possibilities. Even you know, Phil as the the Sultan of the galaxy or the king of the universe and Tony as you know living on planet Mars or something like that. Any bizarre thing one can imagine it's there in the imagination if you like of consciousness so these are all imaginary they're not real that's why they're not manifest they are imaginary now why would then anything appear as physical why would it happen what is why is bothering why is consciousness bothered to do anything like creation or manifestation The thing is that its nature is to be conscious in different ways. And one thing it doesn't know is how to be conscious in a limited way. Because it is examining and imagining all these things, but what is it like to actually be one of those things? In order to be one of those things, it has to hide itself from its infinite being and become those things. And this is how it can know what it is like to be an electron, what it is like to be a bat, what it is like to be a chimpanzee, what it is like to be Mary and John and David, what it is like to be Mary at this age, Mary at that age, David at this age, doing this or doing that. And so out of the natural nature of the infinite unbounded, primary reality, it allows this to happen. Now, what is the sequence? How does it happen? If we look at our universe, it starts from the most basic. This is why we say the particles emerge first, and then they combine to form atoms, and then they combine to form molecules, combine to form cells, combine to form tissues, organs, and then a human being. And that is how actually consciousness grows in creation, in manifestation, let's call it. And so all these possibilities of combination happen. Some of them create Mary, some of them create John, some of them create David, and these are just different combinations of possibilities.
2: So let me ask you then, I I once gave a lecture on the brain being hardwired for God. And, you know, if, if you look historically and archaeologically, every society had some evidence of worship, you know, not necessarily a Christian God or Muslim God or, or, or whatever. Is that just part then of the consciousness of the model that evolved into the world and the universe or the, the, the planet that we live on? Or do you think that there is some component to a a spiritual part of consciousness that is pervasive in everything
1: the spiritual part ultimate spiritual part is to actually discover the true reality ultimate reality and i mean i'm talking within this paradigm what is this paradigm saying this paradigm saying is there is one consciousness and that has so many ways it can be conscious And as we discussed, there are levels of consciousness. So ultimately, ultimately, what we call spiritual is the actual experience of pure consciousness. It means going back to the source, going back to who we really are. Because in this paradigm, we said that consciousness is primary, and then we are caught in the limited experiences of consciousness. Limited experience from the perspective of a cat, from the perspective then of a monkey, from a perspective of a painter, a pilot, a physician, etc. These are perspectives. And when we are caught in these perspectives, we think this is the end all of things. That is what we call, between quotation marks, states of ignorance of reality. <laughs> ignorance of true reality <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> from this paradigm perspective i'm not accusing <laughs> everyone to be from this perspective of this paradigm we are not knowing true reality now this this wiring which means how is it that then we are looking for something more and that is because as our consciousness rises we start seeing beyond the limited perspectives. And there is something within us that wakes up to the true reality. The true reality which is we are all that consciousness hiding itself in different ways and being revealed in different ways as we evolve in our awareness. And so you might have different ways of looking also at the spiritual reality which means that thing which is consciousness, you can call it God, you can call it God with those characteristics, or call it divine with this characteristic, or call it a force of nature, or call it spirit, or call it this and that. All of these are kind of unraveling gradually the true ultimate nature of reality, of reality being that one consciousness that actually appears as many.
2: Does consciousness have a purpose or it just is? Because earlier earlier you were saying consciousness wanted to develop so that a consciousness could appreciate different levels of consciousness. Beautiful. So that, that to me means that it must, consciousness has some form of purpose.
1: Well, it sounds like purpose and intention, but it's spontaneous in the sense that it is its nature so the nature of consciousness is to be conscious and to be conscious in all different ways so spontaneously it takes those aspects in it's as if it has no choice in it in a sense and as if it doesn't manipulate it so that it goes like that but This brings us to, for example, a very important question about design versus trial and error. Now, is there a design? Is there a purpose? Is there a meaning? Where are we going? Or is it all trial and error and chaos and then suddenly something emerges? Well, the way I like to solve this is that both are real. There is a design in the sense that There is a path towards higher consciousness in which the combination of different factors lead to ultimate experience and realization of the ultimate truth and reality that consciousness is all there is. There is a path towards higher awareness and higher consciousness, which I can call unity consciousness, where you realize you are one with everything. Now... In order to get there, you have to have a system that is able to uphold that ability to see from this wide perspective. That is why more complexity and more orderliness are needed. More complexity and more orderliness are needed. Therefore, that's why we have a nervous system. The more complex and the more orderly and the more the different parts are used, in the brain, the more you are able to see the ultimate reality. So there is a path, there is a direction, but in order to get to that direction, the whole path is by trial and error at the beginning. And it starts by combination. You can have random combinations, things that work, and that don't work, and that get destroyed and destroy each other. And then as you grow, you rise in consciousness. And as you rise in consciousness, now you have the ability to choose and you have the ability to make a difference. And this is where there is responsibility and there is all of this. And there is ultimately an end goal that is what we call enlightenment.
2: You use the term pathway for consciousness developing. I'll use the word evolution. And you know, one of the frustrating things I find in evolution is that the technological aspects of our lives have progressed. But if you look at our existence, given what's going on in the world today, we have not evolved. We have not found that pathway to a higher a higher level of consciousness. I don't want to put a value judgment on war and killing and all that, but I mean, one would assume that the good part of consciousness is the sustenance of the beings and moving on to another level.
1: Absolutely beautiful. You're so great in pointing me to, to the next point of what needs to be addressed. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, that's why we have technologies of consciousness. And that's what brings us to the important point that what I'm saying is not just theoretical, but there are techniques, ways by which one can truly unfold the potential of the brain, open up those 80% that are kind of either dormant or analyzing in a subliminal level, and wake those up and be able then with this wonderful machine that we have, to actually see the true ultimate reality and so what happens is you transcend you have to transcend what one has to do is go beyond the limited perception we have seen that it's the limited perception that we calling inability to see the wholeness i use a strong term ignorance but you know the <laughs> I, I
2: don't disagree
1: <laughs> who is in that paradigm we don't know when you don't know we're calling ignorance when one doesn't know that field one call i ignore it i don't know it yeah. so this is why transcendental meditation is so powerful and so important and we have seen in the research that when people transcend which means go beyond the surface limited value they experience an inner self which is completely quiet, silent, full of peace and happiness and inner bliss. And that is really the experience of the ultimate consciousness that we call the primary consciousness that we talked about, which is our true self. This means humans have already evolved to the point where they can experience the transcendent. And the research has shown that the brain activity is more coherent between front and back, right and left, and there is more use of the reserves of the brain. And the brain actually responds to stimuli not only by localized response, but it gets generalized to the brain, which means all the association fibers are open and they lead to the connectedness, interconnectedness. So the stimulus that comes in leads to a generalized response which means we are using all of these potentials and possibilities and processors together to analyze the situation rather than analyze it from a very limited perspective. So that leads us to see that actually, there is a change and transformation. And this transformation that happens with transcendental meditation is not only on the brain, but as you said beautifully from the beginning, It has an effect on hormones. It has an effect on the immune system. It has an effect on the whole health of the individual and their behavior. And then it also has an effect. And this is where we come to the collective consciousness. It has an effect on society. Now this can sound that is unusual from a paradigm of physicalist perspective. But from a paradigm of consciousness, we can imagine that in the same way as individual neurons work together to create a collective awareness that we call my awareness, my consciousness, I think we can say that individual human beings can interact together in a way that they create or they enliven a collective awareness a collective consciousness and if the individuals are stressed in a society or fearful then the society is fearful and there is therefore then potential for conflict and problems in society if the individuals are peaceful and clear then the society is more peaceful and clear and there is a better decision making even on the social level now Sorry, the answer is a little longer, but there is scientific empirical support for this that we have done, that people have done in research on conflict resolution through these technologies of consciousness. For example, in the 1990s, uh, mid 1990s, we decided to do a big experiment in Washington, D.C., to show that we can actually influence conflict, crime rate, accidents of the road in a city. So we selected a time that has absolutely no reason why accidents of the road and crime would decrease from basic statistics that have been followed up for dozens of years. And we brought a group to Washington DC, I was part of it, and the scientists actually announced this to the social scientist and said, look, we're going to do this experiment, now you can observe. So we went there and we practiced our program of consciousness, which is transcending, and together it creates a very powerful effect. And actually, indeed, in a systematic way, in a scientifically significant way, with very, very low chance occurrence, we have shown that crime decreased, that accidents of the roads increased, and many social indicators have improved in Washington during the time when we were practicing this and when we stopped it came back to the usual baseline so this is one experiment there has been dozens of experiments that have been done like this that show actually that the collective awareness even from a group can influence the mood and the atmosphere in society so this is not just theory and imagination it really has very, very empirical, practical studies that are behind it.
2: I was impressed in your writings where if 1% of the population agrees on something, they can change an entire population. And, you know, that, that's the example that, that you're giving. And I presume that you think that the, the transcendental meditation that you were teaching these people in Washington, D.C., reduce their stress levels so that probably reduced the negative interactions that they were having either on the road driving or interacting with other people and thereby the positive societal collective consciousness effect
1: we can think that it is happening through interaction but in fact the theory is that it happens through consciousness itself which means there is something that is real that is called collective consciousness and that collective consciousness is the result of the if you like sum total of the consciousness of the individuals in society so if more people are diving deep within themselves and awakening that field of inner harmony etc it is being awakened in society whether through interaction or indirectly or directly through interaction or
2: through just the mood that this creates. Do you think there's a stress inherent? I mean, if if we come to the conclusion that consciousness is, and it has its own purpose for being, and it will manifest itself in many ways, that there's the risk that you and I will suffer from, the lack of identity, you know who's Phil who's Tony and what impact that would have both on me as an individual, but then, as you said, the collective consciousness in our surrounding area.
1: We have two aspects of the self There is what we call the small self with a small s which is identified by our physical structure, our genes, our role in life, our profession, our age, our nationality, our prejudices, our beliefs, etc, etc, and this is what defines our true individuality, which actually is real, of course, and we can't deny it. It's like we're saying, what is the ring? The ring is a ring, this bracelet is a bracelet, the necklace is a necklace. But then if you ask more, what is actually the essence of the ring? And you say, well, it's gold. What is the essence of the bracelet? It's gold. So the bracelet doesn't lose its identity as a bracelet, but it also recognizes its reality ultimately as also gold you know we can take the example of a sap in a tree the sap creates the flowers creates the branch create the leaf create the trunk so the sap comes and becomes transforms in its structure and way of connecting its molecules and appears as the trunk or the leaf the green leaf or it appears as the red flower or it appears as the fruit now all these are real and they have their identity but they are all the sap they're all in their essence the sap so when i think what i am i am who i am i'm sitting here talking with a great neurosurgeon and like that and i am real he is real we are both real on that level but my essence is pure consciousness my true essence is gold is the sap as well as yours and so if i realize that actually even on the level of realization then i feel one with you and i feel you are another beautiful expression of the same thing which i am in my essence in my reality and that brings what we call a sense of unity unity in diversity So we don't wanna eliminate diversity in order to create peace and harmony. What we want is to allow everyone to know that they are that infinite pure being within themselves appearing as many and that those many create richness of life and fullness of expression.
2: Has there been research looking at the effects of Transcendental Meditation in terms of unity Within a, a, a single culture, say Asian, and between cultures, Asians, Blacks, Hispanics, common sense would tell me that it would be TM would have a very positive effect on interpersonal, interconscious relationships. Absolutely.
1: This is really very, very interesting, also. And it has been tried so that there is two aspects there is cultural integrity, which means people actually based on their natural conditions and their traditions, they have a better even appreciation of their own culture, their own differences, and their own specificity and their own languages, etc. So, as if the differences become more clear, yet the harmony with the others is even more profound and more integrated. It's really like a garden of flowers with different colors. And the richness of a yellow flower enjoys the richness of the red flower, because the red makes the contrast even more (laughs) with the yellow. And the garden looks beautiful, except, you know, if you say, well, we want them not to fight, so let them all fade away. You get less yellow, you get less red. And therefore, now you will look like each other, but it'll be boring, it will be uninteresting and it will not be expressing the richness of the possibilities of what a garden can be. So the more yellow you are and the more red you are, the more I feel yellow and happy of myself, knowing that we are one garden that creates a beauty of togetherness.
2: What I think needs to happen is that TM needs to be a core curriculum. Uh, in every elementary school and it would be marvelous to look at over time the positive effects on the unified consciousness and uh, hopefully people would just get along better and we'd see less stress and less crime <laughs>
1: beautiful it's actually happening it's actually happening we have many organizations and one of the important ones promoted by and created by Dr. David Lynch, David Lynch Foundation, with Bobby Ross as its CEO, that has been teaching through our support in different schools that are, you know, also underprivileged schools with kids that are prone to problems and crime, etc. And we have seen the results and the research has really been very, very profound. I mean, this is on one level. On the other level, for example, one thing which is very nice to mention because we as doctors are concerned, for example, during this pandemic, many doctors have experienced the depression, anxiety. Even we have seen suicide and nurses and hospital professionals. So we have been promoting this and teaching it in different hospitals. Harvard Associated Hospitals, Duke University Hospitals and other in Florida. And research has been done on health professionals. We call the program, Heal the Healers. And uh, we have seen a very important change in depression, anxiety, uh, sleep is improved, feeling better, ability to take care of the patients is improved. So these are really empirical, very strong, supported scientifically. And it has been many of these studies have been peer reviewed and published. Yeah. And those studies on heal the healers will soon be also published.
2: Since it's secular, I would hope that it would be widely accepted and applied. Uh, you know, I can only agree with you. I think that it's it's something that we need to implement the next hard thing would be just like telling a person they need to go out and exercise more for good health, sleep more for good health and eat a better diet, getting them to take 20 minutes two times a day to do TM this is gonna be the next challenge.
1: <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, thank you. I mean, with such expert advice, people will listen. <laughs> <laughs> they have to look at the research and do it. You know, There have been actually many anecdotes and even sequential cases where a judge, for example, has requested a person to actually practice Transcendental Meditation. So they have this was their recommendation and their request for rehabilitation.
2: <laughs> I love it. I love it.
1: <laughs> so this is wonderful, Dr. Stig. i like to stay with you as long as you like. I don't know how your time allows,
2: but it's been a joy. I'd love to continue the dialogue. I think that what I do need, personally, what I need to do is get more into your world, which is the whole concept of consciousness, and bring it back to my world. You know, then we can, you know, there's, like you said, there's the other conversations about the religious aspects of consciousness and the moral aspects and the positive moral implications of TM. It's such a rich subject that... uh, Talking with you is a great pleasure. I really I really enjoy it. Wonderful, Dr. Stig, such a joy. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure getting together with you again, and um, I look forward to doing it in the future.
1: Let's do it again. It will be my
0: joy. All right.
1: All the best.
0: Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter,